Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Hello, everyone. I'm Louise Fipsempt, your host of Blink of an Eye podcast and the founder of Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. We all know how life can change in the blink of an eye. Please reach out to me at louise at blinkofaneye.org about your experiences with trauma and trauma healing. Our next guest is a dedicated grief researcher speaker, compassionate consultant, and the host of the Grief Dreams podcast. Listen in to hear how you can unravel the intricate tapestry of how trauma and trauma healing show up in our dreams and how dreams help us experience enduring connections or resiliency after deep loss. Dr. Joshua Black's mission of embracing the profound experiences of grief through dream work extends to those who have faced the heartache of deep loss, ranging from the loss of dearly loved family members and friends to prenatal loss to pet loss. Listen into a fascinating conversation in which Dr. Black shares with us how our dreams can become bridges to our departed and how we can kindle this enchanting phenomenon that is available to us all. Stay tuned. I am blessed to introduce you to Dr. Joshua Black. Dr. Black possesses a master's and doctoral degree in psychology. He is a grief researcher, presenter, advisor, and also helms the Grief Dreams podcast. His research is centered around dreams and enduring connections following bereavement, encompassing instances like prenatal and pet loss. As a prominent scholarly authority in the realm of grief dreams, dreams involving departed individuals, Joshua has dedicated his endeavors to enhancing comprehension of this captivating occurrence via media discussions, including PBS Next Avenue, CBC News, and Toronto Sun, public talks, and instructional sessions. 
Welcome, Dr. Black. Welcome, Joshua. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always appreciative of people wanting to learn more about sort of what I do and the journey I've been on. Oh, I want to learn so much. I am fascinated by dreams and by dream work for many, many years. And now the intersection with grief and trauma and bereavement. So with your expanded view of this topic of dream work and the intersection, I'm wondering if you might give our listeners a sense of who you are as we begin this conversation. Before I begin to tell you who I am, I first want to just acknowledge that I am uh, on the unceded Salo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia in Canada, specifically in a town commonly known as Abbotsford. And I just want to always try to acknowledge and honor the contribution Indigenous people have made and continue to make to not only like to our community, but also this topic that I'm going to be talking about which so like I've only learned recently about a lot of the traumas that they've endured and continue to endure. And that's what we're going to be talking about is trauma. And so the dreams that they valued throughout and Western cultures is still trying to, I guess, get to that state where we understand the value of these dreams. Let's just pause for all the indigenous resiliency and the trauma that our indigenous peoples are still with us and a pause for what it is that those who did not understand their values and culture have done to destroy so much of what they had. Thank you for that, Joshua. We're all learning about trauma and what our actions and past actions are doing. And some of it, it's, we just don't understand. And it's just the more we talk about it, the more we're learning and hence why your podcast is important to be able to talk about trauma and, and how it impacts people and the effects and how we carry it with us. And we just sometimes unknowingly are doing and triggering people with our actions, especially being a white settler, you know, talking about dreams. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting, the, the dynamics in that and to always sort of approach it with care and, and consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, I was blessed to do about eight years of work with the Hopi Indian Nation and had been asked onto the reservation by a a full-blood Hopi judge whom I had met at a conference when I was speaking about relational practices. And I had to come in with great humility and learned a reverence for even slowing things down for how it is that we take in each other, our stories, and information that we of Caucasian descent and heritage, we move so fast. Intellectually, we aspire to have that as one of our higher values when there's so much in other subconscious realms as well as intergenerational and legacy realms that we can learn from and be receiving of the wisdom if we are aware in the moment. And so I'm just really appreciative of how you acknowledge that. And so that tells us a lot about who you are already, but tell us more. (laughs) Well, I'm learning about myself every day. And so for me, I would say I'm a person on a journey trying to understand love, trying to understand life and the different facets that are drawn to me. 
And so the biggest thing for me was, you know, understanding grief and bereavement was an aspect of me learning about myself. And then my own dreams helped me understand the value of dreams. And so with those two, I've really learned a lot about who I am and I guess the possibilities of who I could be mm. as we sort of move forward. And so, you know, with these dreams, it's really showcased a lot of things I didn't realize about myself. And the, the biggest thing is love and, and what love is and how it feels when you're in it. And when you look in the mirror, can you love the image that is reflected from you? And I think that's sort of sort of my journey. It's just interesting how our lives take us on these different paths to try to, I guess, understand ourselves a little bit better and where our passions lie to serving other people on our journey because there's so many different ways we can serve. And for me, it is through, you know, grief and bereavement talks and, and the dreams, especially just because not many people are doing the research in that area. And so I'm able to talk about it in an academic setting, but also with the compassion, empathy of someone who's been bereaved. Yeah, that beautiful intertwining of someone who can speak the language of those who need to hear and also can take them to a place of expansion. You know, your journey that's so imbued with this profound connection to grief and your mentioning of your own self-awareness are you willing to share with us your personal connection to the experience of grief? Yes, I guess the the first part is before I go to the grief and I think the dreams I had after that of my father who died. I'd like to just take a moment to talk about how I even learned that dreams had meaning. I think that helps mm-hmm. in sort of the story. And so for me, I grew up in a very Christian home where I guess it was more conservative than anything. And I had a lot of nightmares as a child. And so both my parents would tell me that the dreams were from the devil. And so my understanding of dreams really came from this view that the devil was the one creating the dreams. And so I was always afraid of them. And I never thought them having any kind of meaning at all. I've learned now through just Western research that there could have been another way of understanding these dreams and understanding how trauma, which I was going through at that time, Um, and feeling of unsafety um, was actually influencing those dreams. And I think it's just understanding that context. But so I I grew up in life not valuing dreams. And then I had this very serious, uh, I thought it was like, you know, your first love, like your relationship right in high school. And then I, right after that, I went to university and so did she. And um, she then, you know, informed me that she cheated on me. And the amount of pain I felt. Ooh, I just got chills. The worst pain I've, I've felt at that time, and honestly, I didn't understand it. It wouldn't go away. Like the things I would try to do to cope wouldn't wasn't helping, and just that betrayal was just so deep into a sense of like a core being that it. I felt like it was just, I don't know. It's hard to explain what I felt, but it. I couldn't eat or sleep for like three days. It was just so intense, and it just wouldn't go away. And so at that moment, that's when I actually prayed to whoever was around because, you know, as much as I went to church with my parents, I didn't fully believe. And so I'm like, I was at my last straw where I'm like, you know, like, just give me some understanding on why I feel this way. Like, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't understand it. And it's interesting, I never asked to take it away, but I asked some understanding on this pain I was feeling. So this is when I had my first dream that actually had any kind of meaning to me. And so in the dream, I was like this reporter and I was running by the stream of water and I was following it. It was like leading me somewhere. 
And I was going under bridges, over hills, and it felt like seven hours. I was just following this stream. Then it opened up to a, a giant ocean. And then I was looking around, I saw a pier. And on the pier, there was this person. And so I ran to the person asking, where is it? Where is it? Frantically searching for something. And the person turned and looked at me sort of with these like, you know, really mystical kind of eyes, you know, like the people that know stuff, you know, <laughs> you know those people. And that he said, misty wisdom. That's right. It's all in the eyes. And so, <laughs> and so um, he pointed to the left and saying, it could be over there in the ocean. He said, pointed to the right, it could be over there. Pointed straight ahead. He said, it could be over there. And then he turned back around to me and he said, you know where it truly is though? I said, where, where, where? And he pointed to his mind. And then I woke up and like a shot of lightning went through me. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And what he was referring to, the, the information I got anyways when I woke up, was that the pain was coming from my own belief system and structure. And that it was coming from the inside. It wasn't coming from the outside. Because I was blaming her for what she's done and blaming him for what he did. But the truth is that the, the pain was coming from a deep point that I didn't love myself. And that lack of love, her actions really just brought it up to the surface. And I was looking at a truth that I never acknowledged prior. And so that's when I really realized that there are some things in me that were causing this and that there's some control over that in a way. And so I was like, well, I want to, I don't want to feel like this again. <laughs> but I also sort of, what would life be if I loved myself? And so it was a deep reflection on a truth that I never acknowledged prior. On, and it really helped me shape my path because then I started to really try to understand who I am as an individual and what the truth was of what I feared, why I feared things, you know, just my focus in life and what thoughts I was thinking. And dreams after that moment started to, I guess, give me the insights and opportunities to learn about who I was because you know, emotional intelligence isn't something we're, we're taught. And so I didn't really know, I didn't know much about my emotions and what, what they're being stemmed from. And so that was a lot of my journey. And so I was going to school to be an elementary school teacher. That was sort of the drive there. And then my father died. And once again, it was, an, it was another devastating loss. It was, it was a shock. He died very suddenly, right actually around my birthday. And we we're supposed to go to this, this hockey game. Mm -hmm. He just never showed up. Mm -hmm. And so when I was first told that he died, it was just, you just have this like, just as tears and this like shock and you just don't know what's going on because you don't think it's possible. You think it's going to be if you there's a notification and then like you get to say your goodbyes, but none of that happened. And so it was hard processing that. And I remember doing the eulogy, um, which I don't know if I recommend that for everyone, but I did it and it was hard. Yeah. I just kept crying. It was just like one of the hardest, I guess, talks I, I've done um, to actually make it through because it was just so mm -hmm. difficult. But I think there was a release there because I was saying he was dead to like so many people that were in front of me. But what was interesting in my journey there was after that funeral, I didn't feel, I didn't cry anymore. I almost, the best way to put it, I didn't feel anything. And I went back mm -hmm. to school, went back to work, like nothing happened. And everyone thought I was doing okay because my behavior externally was okay. But inside, I would say I was living in this gray and black kind of world where there's no color anymore, where there once was. And so this is sort of where the story changes because three months I was just in this place. I didn't have any desire to get out. I just thought this was what grief is. You know, maybe this is just how life will be. 
And then I had this dream and I wasn't asking for one. I didn't even know you could have one. <laughs> it was just, but I had this dream of my father. It was just so beautiful. It was just so remarkable. I remember it was in my room where I was like sleeping at that time. And I saw him at the other end and I was like kind of shocked. And I, I walked up to him and he was looking through some of my stuff because at that time I had like a lot of clutter in my room. That was more of his personality that I took on. I've changed that. But at that time, <laughs> he was looking through and he was kind of like, you know, interested in some of the uh, the clutter in the room. And mm. uh, But he looked healthy and happy and he looked light. And like one of the things I need to mention was like, he had a lot of trauma that he carried around with him. And he used to cope through um, using alcohol. And so it was never really effective in helping him manage his stress and 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 understanding his own trauma. So he always walked around with this heaviness to him. And so in the dream, he was like light. It was the first time I've seen him like that. So like it wasn't really like a memory. It was something new. And I walked up to him. I said, I'm going to miss you, acknowledging the loss. And then I told him that I loved him. And it was just a beautiful moment. And I was I hugged him, he hugged me back. And there's just this like peace and like perfection of the in the moment. I woke up and I was, I didn't know what happened because everything in my life changed. The color was back. My emotions were self-regulating again. It was just like, I did a 180 and it wasn't because I interpreted the dream. The dream itself changed me. And I keep, I remember sitting at the edge of my bed, just thinking, what was that? And how could it be, how could it change me like that? And I was just sitting there just like trying to figure it out. But at the end of the day, I still understand it, but I know it changed me. And that kind of set this probably set the seeds to the importance of these dreams in the grief journey after someone has died. And then that's sort of where it all started. And then I had, I never told wow. anyone about those dreams, but yeah. I valued them because I had a couple more afterwards that were really comforting to me where I had like that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Why do you suppose you didn't tell anyone? Looking back, well, no one really valued dreams around me. Um, so that's probably one way. Uh, the other one was I probably didn't want anyone to sort of chime in with their own interpretations. Like I, it was really sacred in many ways because it changed me so much. And I didn't feel, I don't think anyone around me could be trusted with that information um, and to hold it as sacred, I guess the best way to put it. Yeah, I didn't want to have to share it so that the sacredness might get tarnished in some way. So I've heard like really horror stories of that happening with just people that have shared these dreams where they try to change a person's interpretation or they try to put it down or they say something about your grief. Like they just, they don't honor it as it should be honored at points in someone's life. Um, and so maybe that's, you know, probably part of what it is. I don't know. Let's just mark that. How powerful it is for each of us if there's been a very important dream that we've experienced whether it's shared or if it's not but if it is shared for the listener to just receive it just receive it with reverence mm, yeah so you moved into volunteering yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, like, like, what else can you do? So I want to be that elementary school teacher still, but it's interesting when I went there, the, um, I had the interview to get in. I just didn't want to go. Like there's something in me that said no. And that was like one of the, I think first times I trusted something inside me, like what people would mm -hmm. call it intuition. Um, yeah. I don't know what I would call it, but it was just, it was saying no. And so I listened to it, not knowing what I was going to do afterwards because my whole life was based on becoming this teacher. And so I took time off and I volunteered because I wanted to at least 
do something meaningful in that time or try to figure out my own life. And so I volunteered at a bereavement support program and I did like one-on-one and also group supports. And what was interesting was people kept bringing up dreams that they had of their deceased or dreams that they wanted to have that they um, and that they weren't having. Some people had nightmares. And I was really curious because like the questions they had, I never had those questions. I had my own dreams, but I never really questioned the dreams. You know, like, it just happened, right? But they had all these different types of questions. And so as a recent academic, I was like, I wonder what kind of research is out there for them. And when I looked, there wasn't anything that I could actually provide them that actually answered their questions. And I was kind of curious about that. Like, why was that ignored? I was like, kind of shocked because it seemed like so meaningful in my own journey. Like, why haven't this been researched more? Um, and so mm-hmm. that's when I had the idea come in, like, what happens if I research this? And I never want to be a researcher. <laughs> um, but, right, you, you might know, have been an elementary school teacher. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wasn't prepared for this. But it took, I think, I would say it took a lot of courage for me to say yes to that because it's, mm-hmm. it was, I knew it was going to be a difficult road because that's not something I wanted to be. But I know I kind of had a desire to find more about it. And that's what I did. So I went to my master's and PhD. And it was just amazing to have supervisors willing to study a subject that they had really no understanding of themselves because there wasn't really the research there for them. And usually when you pick a supervisor, they have the expertise in that area. And so no one had expertise in the area. <laughs> and so they're helping the best they could. And we're both, you know, like interested in the topics. And so it was really remarkable on what the research has found and, and what I was able to sort of understand because it was a much bigger topic than I initially thought just going in. I had this couple of questions, but once I went in, I realized there's a lot of bias, a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of people don't understand didn't understand the value of these dreams or how common it was. And so things have changed now because of the research, but it was so interesting to sort of see how people in the Western world need research to value a phenomenon. Like yeah, it's exactly. just, it's so Something surprising. known all along, but they need the research to give it validation. Yeah. And yeah. so, and that's, I guess, you know, what I've done and I continue to, to do. And now it's really just raising that awareness and it provides meaning for my own grief, to tell you the truth. It really sort of has shifted me and to be able to provide space for people to be able to feel like they can share these dreams too. It's very, it's a beautiful honor. Mm. Well, I look forward to hearing in a moment about your research. I'll have to just, I feel compelled and so connected to share with you when I was a little girl. I lost my father as well, and it was one of those blink-of-an-eye moments. He was killed in a commercial airplane crash, and I remember being three and a half years old, and my mom had me seated on the counter of our home in New York, and she was doing the dishes, and I had my little tooties in the soapy dishwater, and it came over the radio, the little um, transistor radio on the counter, and watching my mom collapse on the floor and with such a little understanding of that and we moved back to the midwest to illinois where i then spent my the rest of my formative years and i was plagued by a dream that would have me awaken in the middle of the night for years with perspiration dripping down my little face as a very young, you know, second grader and then fourth grader and sixth grader. Uh, Maybe it was when I was about in sixth or seventh grade. I'm not completely certain. 
But my dream was I was this red ball in a black and white maze, like a pinball. And I just couldn't get out. And one night, I had this incredible experience where my dad came and sat bedside. I had imagined, I loved the show Gilligan's Island and had never accepted that my father was dead. I had imagined that he was marauded on some island, you know, in the South Pacific, and he would always come back to us. He, I knew he loved me, and he loved my mom, and he would come back to us. And there he was this one night at the edge of my bed, and so beautiful, and rather there was this ephemeral, kind of a see-through-ish, but very real quality. He looked so well, and he, I just remember like feeling so warm, and it was familiar, and he said, I need you to know that I am not coming back, but I will always be with you. Oh, I never had that dream again. Yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful moment together and to hear and like, wow. And so how did your life change after that? It changed radically. I was always a little go-getter and one of those, you know, like natural leader kids. But in that, I can't say in like that moment, I, I cherished it. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell, you know, my best friend. Like you said, I suppose I couldn't even have given it some cognitive reasoning why, but I probably didn't want the holiness of it tarnished in any way. But what happened is I now then knew my father was somehow out there, like in my heaven, but was so real that it gave me a completely different experience of death in that it wasn't just angels, you know, in heaven, but, you know, he was with me. I was always on a pretty straight and narrow path. I mean, I did stuff, of course, what child doesn't, but... It turned into almost like my dad is my super ego. So everything I did was as if he were watching and I was making him proud. And I then later had to break down and break through some of that, which was, I think, uh, another layering of some numbness of I had this incredible experience. I was alive and free again. But now I played my whole life in his eyes that were always there. And uh, that was that's another journey that also had another dream uh, that involved my mother-in-law also coming to me in a very physical way with just a big hug and telling me how much she loved me and wanted me to be happy, to be free. Well, I think both yeah. your dreams have like the same kind of theme with this love, this profound love and profound through to help love. you where you were in the journey at that time. And I think that's just profound to have those in those moments and it, it really is like I said like it can shape you and where you move next and where your feet move and it's so beautiful that you had those did you tell anyone about those dreams since like I'm curious in the beginning you didn't but like after a while did you start sharing those or is this the first time you're sharing it <laughs> I haven't shared them very often I 
I did share the one about my dad with my husband when his mom came to visit me. I said, you will not believe Peggy came to visit me last night. You know, Billy was like, right, Wheezy, you know, here, here you go again, because I'm, I've, I don't know, since my dad visited me, I had become as a child and into an adulthood, a very expansive thinker. I'm open to lots of things, even though I'm very Catholic in my origin. I am very mystically oriented and just fascinated and open to others' wisdom. And when I told my husband about Peggy coming, I then told him how Dodo had come to visit me. And I have to really give my husband great credit because he didn't say like, you're not, you know, or that's impossible. He just said, okay. Like he just really received it. That meant a lot for our relationship as well. You know, the way we experienced each other. So yeah, thank you for asking. (laughs) That's beautiful. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> I'm really happy yeah. that I said that he was able to allow you to share that and said like and, and allow you to feel comfortable sharing that because it, it's a meaningful point in your life. It's like we share about a lot of the negative points in our life. Like that seems easy, right? But it's like those joyous points and those points that change us. It's, you know, it can be a little more difficult at times. And so it's nice that you had a situation where you're able to share some of that. And it seems like you're having a lot of dreams of people who have died. (laughs) I know. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about that, maybe being a death doula or, you know, very in touch with nature. And when other people do die, I do get messages and so forth. But I'm really, really curious about your research because it just sounds as though this um, decision you made to be of service to others really was the pathway that took you then to becoming the researcher that you are. And I'm wondering with this body of research that you have that's so remarkable, what points of it do you find most compelling or most exciting or most joyful? Where should we start? We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www.baltimoremediation.com. 
the quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I think the most, probably the easiest people like to focus on is the percent. Like how many people actually had these dreams in my samples? And so after spells of loss, within the first year to 86% of people had at least one dream of the deceased. After pet loss, it was 78% within six months. And then after a miscarriage, it was 57%, which I thought was really interesting because I didn't know what I was looking for going to find. But they're dreaming of someone they've never actually met. So it's not a memory. Like it's a lot of people will think, oh, these are memories, but they've never actually seen the child. And yet they're having dreams of the baby uh, maybe being christened or like holding, holding with the child as an infant, or they're dreaming of them at different ages, like one or two, where they can sort of say, I love you, or they're playing tag, or even as in, you know, a teenager where they can sort of help relieve the guilt sometimes birth mothers may have thinking that they've done something wrong like to cause a miscarriage. And so they have a couple of dreams have had the, I guess, the yeah, teenage child basically reassure them that they didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting as you see those numbers. And so if you think about all the people who are grieving um, someone or bereaved, I guess, best way to put it, I would say, you know, 60, 70% of people are probably having a dream of that person at some point. And the longer you wait, the more chance you probably have of actually having that dream. And so, but that's a lot of people, but yet we don't know much about something like this and how it impacts people. And like we talk both about very positive dreams, right? Very comforting dreams. Not everyone has that. Like people can have these negative dreams of the deceased also that can reduce their ability to sleep because they're afraid of having that again. These dreams can be repetitive and feel like a form of trauma, right? Like in the sense of some of the themes that that happen. And so based on the research, just Western research on dreams, we would expect people to have more nightmares and like negative dreams of the deceased. The reason for that is that dreams tend to reflect our waking life. So when we're happy and you know more excited, we're going to have more positive dreams. And then when we're more sad or anxious, we're going to have more negative dreams. Right. So this is how research has shown. And so when you're grieving, one would think you'd have more negative dreams of the deceased because that's the state you're in. And that's what you're thinking about. But for whatever reason, that's not true. Like, so what people are having is these comforting dreams of the deceased. And so about 90% of people had these spells of loss and pet loss dreams. It was reported having positive dreams and around like 30%. Mm -hmm was negative dreams. And what was interesting is those who had negative dreams tend to also have positive dreams too. So very rare just have like straight negative dreams, but it was common to have just all positive dreams. And so it, was, it goes against typical dream research. And so it's really interesting to me because something else is going on. And I think that's where a lot of people love in the spiritual realm or people who are spiritual would say, oh, maybe they're visitations. Like maybe that's what's going on. And I, say, I, I don't know. I, I know they act differently. People tend to sort of talk about them as being more vivid, more real than real. There's a feeling of love and peace. That's very common yeah. that a lot of people state that they have never felt in waking life. And it's so interesting that they could feel it in a dream. 
but not in waking life. Our son, Arthur, was uh, catastrophically injured, which is actually the origin of the Blink of an Eye podcast with that, the trauma story and now trauma healing learnings. And something so incredible, I'm just thinking about this for the first time, thanks to you. In our first, I'd say, six months of intense crisis in ICUs, trying to help stay alive, I had at least three people and two of them whom I didn't know that well texting me that they had had a dream that Archer, who was paralyzed from his neck on down, was walking and laughing. And when I would receive these texts, because I was living bedside to Arch, I would tell him about them immediately, like, oh my goodness, so-and-so just texted me that she had a dream last night, Arch. You were walking and so happy and this, that, and the other. And another, like, he was older and had, like, you know, was holding the hand of two children. And, I mean, amazing things. And they provided him so much hope, like, like, vicariously through their sharing when they had not experienced the loss as he and we were, but we're all in this together kind of thing. Yeah, and it's amazing how, say, when you start looking outside of, like, when other people go through trauma, I wonder how dreams do reflect people's resiliency and hope to be able to work through some of the stuff. We know in bereavement, it's these dreams tend to really, really provide people that. Um, and to sort of release some feelings of guilt or anger or frustrations that they're also having, um, it's actually remarkable in how a dream could change someone, like nothing else in waking life. It's like, because you could tell that, same sentence that the deceased said to someone in waking life and it wouldn't change them. But because of the moment and who said it within the dream, it changes them. And it's just, it's, it changes. I, yes. I just don't understand it, but I know it's real. And I think it's important to understand like the impacts they can have on people. And that's why we Huge need to impact. honor them, right? And we need to honor those dreams. And so the negative dreams, a lot of people who are spiritual can also take those as visitation. So this is sort of where I tried to help people with discernment because we understand Western research a little bit, you know, in the, in the sense of dreams. And so we would expect people to have negative dreams and nightmares. And so these nightmares may not be a reflection of a visitation. I don't know what's going on, but... It could be more a reflection of just problem solving or working... Oh, yeah, your mind through. working through some of the trauma and grief because that's what we would expect because we know after trauma, people have increased negative dreams. Additionally, so just in general, people have negative dreams, but after trauma, we'll have even more. And those themes are like, could be reenacting of, some, of the death or the trauma itself in the way it actually happened or something a little bit different. Could be feelings of hopelessness. Um, yeah, feelings of like, I would wake up drowning when it was Archer who drowned. I that's right, I yeah. Because that's your, your emotions, you're drowning in the, just your emotions and self and waking life. And so it's, yeah. you know, like, I sort of look at the mind as trying to help process some of the emotions um, that we're feeling. And so trying to rework that within ourselves. So these negative dreams of the seas could be looked at it in a different way. Like it's, It could be like your mind processing your grief and your trauma that's going on. It can also give you insights into what you're processing. And so I remember um, an individual sharing a dream with me where her deceased husband comes to the door and basically says, I'm back, you know, like I've never died, like I'm back to be with you. And she's like, 
why you're such a mean person. Like, no, I can't be with you. I'm with someone else right now. And he's like, oh, the real reason I'm back is because I wanted to collect all the inheritance money that you got. And then she's like, why are you such a mean person? Like, no. And then they just became like this really negative scene. And she had it over and over and over again. And then, you know, when you look at the scenery and you ask the person, you know, what's going on here? There's a couple of clues to maybe what she's dealing with. And I learned a lot from actually people's grief from looking at their dreams. And so the first thing you sort of see is that there's this mention of him wanting to be back with her. And then, but she's with someone else. And so I can only imagine the difficulty people have if they're in a new partnership after the death of a partner and trying to love again in that same way and mm -hmm. trying to honor who you still love while you're in this new relationship. And yeah. I've heard so many horror stories of people taking down their, I say, memorials or putting away boxes to try to like please the other person. That's not where they're under grief. And so they're dishonoring their own grief to try to sort of facilitate mm -hmm. someone else's love um and so there's yeah. you know conflict there and then also when you ask there's other thing about this money and when you ask her about the money she said that's the one thing that she still has a hard time with because he worked so hard in waking life and he never got to enjoy it and now she's the one that gets to utilize it and she feels it's so unjust and so she's having mm -hmm. you sort of mm -hmm. see this like conflict going on in her that you you would think is not being processed in waking life and she's probably using some of that money on a new relationship which complicates things even more there's little clues sometimes in these negative dreams to, I think, help us pinpoint what maybe we could should be talking about or thinking about um, within mm -hmm. our own griefing process. Because um, I like to see dreams as our best friend. We're telling us truth sometimes that we're unable to see um, while we're yeah. awake. And I think that's just like the, the lack of emotional intelligence that we typically have. Like I'm still learning about my own emotions, but it's not something we, we teach in school. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of beautifulness in looking at it in a different way rather than seeing it as a visitation, which she saw. So she was very confused because he was a very loving individual, but she was having all these negative dreams and it was causing her not wanting to go to sleep, right? So now you're impacting sleep, but can cause huge issues on your health and just your bereavement process. But yeah, there's, there's yeah. so there's different ways to look at it. It's just, I always like to use discernment, but people have their own cultures and I always try to go with whatever their cultures or understanding is and to sort of see how that plays together with their grief and their bereavement. So powerful how we can look at our dreams, whether they are the joyful or the ones that we know are in the realm of miraculous and spiritual to the ones that are guideposts for us of what it is that we have an invitation to further explore and take a look at in our lives that's holding us back stuck somewhere and to lean in to our dreams whatever they are and become so curious about them is such a gift and I think your research is really shedding a light on the path for a number of people doing that and I'm, I'm so appreciative of that I'm also thinking Joshua about some dream work I became familiar with a number of years ago that scientists rely upon and it was called dream incubation where when there is something they're stuck on whether it's a, a mechanical you know, can't figure out how to get the rocket to the moon you know literally or some other very complicated project that a group of very intelligent scientists are working on that they 
will together name what the problem is before they go to bed at night individually and incubate it, like pose the problem to their dream world to see what the five or six of them come back to the lab the next morning and have. And that is really astounding to me. And I learned about that through the noetic sciences work that I'm attracted to. Are you familiar with any of that or what would be your take on that? Yeah, that's cool. And I think it's definitely true. It, you know, I think some people are better at it than others <laughs> in many ways. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I wish it could be that simple for dreaming of deceased. It doesn't seem to be because just wanting it, a dream doesn't seem to occur that frequently or that easily. Where the solutions, I think, you know, it's very interesting because it's, it's a little different. I think it's too, it's also not only the dream, but trying to understand the symbols in the dream. So it can be you may be given a solution, but you may not understand your symbols enough to yeah. understand what the solution is saying because you usually doesn't say it in words. Like like you had words in your dream. I shared words and got like a hug. It's very you know similar to waking life, but usually dreams aren't like that where what is said is tends to be like, you know, kind of bizarre and the imagery seems to be kind of bizarre, but there's clues within that. And so, yes, I believe people are probably doing it more than they know when it comes to like problem solving. But I think it's understanding what those symbols actually mean towards their problem is probably a more difficult uh, task. Like, I'll give you an example with something yeah, I Yeah, I was going to say, give us some yeah, examples yeah. <laughs> as well as maybe you'll share with us what some symbols we might be aware so, of or looking for. So in the pandemic, it was right in the beginning of the pandemic, and I thought I was doing fine. Like, I bought all my toilet paper. I was good. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, like, <laughs> like in I, Y2K, remember that when we were right. stocking oh, up with our jugs of water. <laughs> so I felt I was fine. And then I had this dream where I was in my childhood home and I was taking down, someone was taking down this chandelier um, in the living room. And then I went up to it, I broke off a piece of glass, I, I put it in my mouth and I started eating, eating it. And then, then I realized the glass was being stuck in my throat and I couldn't get it out. And then I woke up in a deep sweat. And so I don't typically have a lot of negative dreams, I think because of the reason of understanding more of my emotions and waking life and talking about them. And so, but this was really caught me off guard because I thought I was doing okay. Like I, I thought I was understanding my situation and my feelings. But if I'm having this, I must not be processing or aware of something. So there's a problem that I wasn't even aware of. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And so, was there ever. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, what does this mean? Like, it's so bizarre. And then I was like trying to think of like symbols and what a chandelier is in a house. And so it gives light to a large room, right? It gives more light to a large room. And then I was like, oh, what's like that in waking life? I said, look, oh, the news is kind of like that. It gives information to like a country. And then I was like, okay, I'm taking it willingly, digesting and chewing it, digesting it, but it's causing me great panic. And then I started, I'm like, oh, I think I know what's going on. I was looking at the news probably three or four times a day, trying to figure out what was going on, things to be aware of. Now you're trying to act safe. But the way that the news was written, I wasn't aware that it's definitely biased for you to produce anxiety so you come back um, to read wow. more. And so I had to take a step back and say, oh, wow. Like I was ingesting all this fear and anxiety and stress as a business model, right? But I wasn't yes. aware of it. And so it was causing me great discomfort within. And so I had a change of plan where I just 
we looked at that, understood it going in, knowing that that's part of play of the business model. And, and I haven't had a dream since. But it got me to be aware of something, of a problem mm-hmm. that was causing me great discomfort that I wasn't even aware of. And so that's like problem solving at its best. And, uh, yeah. but it's like really sort of seeing the symbols in an interesting way. And I think the more you look at it, the more you'll start understanding your own. I think everyone has, I think people need to understand that everyone has their own symbols for things because we all have our own different experiences. And so yeah. when people buy, like, to say a dream dictionary, that is almost useless in many ways because you're, that's the writer's idea of their symbols, not your own. And you live in a different culture, a different place and time. And so you can't really rely on that. And if you try to, you'll now you're confuse your own symbols with their symbols. And it's not going to be, you may not find the answers you're looking for. You'll, or you'll well, interpret. You're really puncturing my <laughs> bubble right now because I have a whole heck of a lot of dream dictionaries. <laughs> and I've given them to my five children for, you know, Christmas and birthday. For yeah, I yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know if it did that justice. But yeah, it's true, though. <laughs> like, it's just, we all have our own. And so it's better to understand your own symbols and understand your own dreams and work with your own dreams to try to understand your symbols, because then you'll know. Like it comes more easily than looking in. And the one caveat I'd say, if you're in a culture that has specific symbols, like indigenous peoples and communities will have different symbols that would represent something, well, then that's something that you would take because it's part of your culture already. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Western culture, yeah, the dream dictionaries, they tend to be like a, you know something you buy, but I don't think it's that useful. But it, it can be useful understanding how symbols can mean different things in many ways yeah. to get your idea around that. Yeah, at sort of a meta level. Yeah, mm-hmm. but overall, I would not recommend it or going online and looking at dreams. It's not that easy. Like you have to learn it and you have to actually want to learn it. And there's books and techniques out there to help you work with your dreams and understand your own symbols. But so it's like rather buy those books to help them rather than, you know, the symbols. Because also the symbols, like they intertwine in your dream, but in the books, they don't. Like, it's just like, it's just not, <laughs> just not good. So yeah. That's what I, what I love how you did that. You got really curious about the chandelier and the, you know, eating the piece of glass and how just incredibly beautiful and intuitive it is when you ask yourself, okay, what does a chandelier do? What in my life is similar? And it was almost like in my world, I'd say it was like a divine whisper, but it was an intuition where it was like, oh, that's like the news. And so I I think that's such a beautiful welcome uh, invitation for all of us listening in to say, hmm, like, get a little curious about those symbols and ask myself what then lands as being appropriate in my world. And I suppose, because I won't throw away all my dream dictionaries, um, that for me, when I have a dream that's really strange and bizarre or hilarious, but I have no clue what it means, I'll go to my dream dictionary. I'll just write down all the like, you know, brainstorming, all the different things I can remember and then go back and see if there's anything about them that threads or brings something else that is contextually meaningful for me. Um, so it's more like a tool, if you will, rather than the interpretation. And I, I love how you did that for yourself, but just questioning about the chandelier and seeing the analogy to the news. When I talk to people about just starting it, I always say the easiest part is go towards what the feeling was. And that feeling is 
should be indicative of a feeling you're feeling in waking life. And then everything surrounds that. So you can really pinpoint it to maybe something you're going through. And then you can sort of understand those symbols in that context, which would be a lot easier to understand. That's something that, you know, for me works really well to be able to do. I love the idea of paying close attention to what was your emotional state in the dream because dreams can be so contrary. They can also, we can, right, dream of some crazy stuff that's even scary, but but your mood is so elevated um, and even joyful. <laughs> what have you found in your research about uh, emotions and even contrary dreams? Well, just I think in emotions itself is there's the dream itself and the emotions you feel in it, but it's also for the brief, there's the emotions when they wake up and they can be different. So based on your understanding. So if you, let's say, have a very comforting dream, but you wake up and you interpret it as some people have said, it's the devil in disguise, right? Some Christians, all of a sudden you have a negative reaction that the devil's in your dream. And so that positive and comforting feeling is now taken away and now you're horrified. Yeah. Um, other people that let's say maybe in a Buddhist culture would believe in reincarnation, they may say that, oh, having a dream of the sea saying I love you is a negative thing because it means that their soul isn't reincarnated. And so they have this anxiousness feeling that they want to do to help them reincarnate so they'll perform these merits. So um, just because you have a really comforting dream doesn't mean you're going to interpret it in a comforting way and vice versa, right? Like if you have a negative dream, some people find a way to, like I do, find a way to, to make it positive or to understand it. And other people will see it in a very unique way where it provides some comfort in some way. And so, yeah, there's almost two distinct um, different things to just be aware of when it comes to understanding the emotions in your dreams. And the cultural overlay. Yeah, the cultural overlay, right? The, which uh, helps you with the understanding. But I think, you know, when you look at the comforting dreams that people feel anyways, there's nothing really to say. It's just it's beautiful. Like, it's just, like, you know, it usually helps them in some way with their own grief journey, which is also beautiful that it can provide that. And you just sort of ask, you know, how it, how is it impacting you, right? Like just to be curious about the dream itself without putting your own understanding or judgments on what it is. Because then you get their understanding of like why mm -hmm. it is meaningful to them. But for the negative dreams, there are ways to help people reduce some of that anxiety when they wake up. Because so like some people do have these negative dreams. Yeah, let's talk about some of that, especially yeah, the trauma so like, and bereavement. And it's common. It's common for children too. And children have these dreams and they can be very confused also by this. And so what you can do is called dream rescripting. And so if someone has, a, let's say, a nightmare, they wake up. What the research has shown is that if you replay that dream, but you put a positive ending on it, or you change the dream in a, in a way that's positive, and you reflect on that when you think about that dream, those negative dreams will decrease. Or if you have them, your distress will be um, much lower because now you have a tool to mm. be able to explore it. Dream rescripting. Yeah. And it's, it works so well. And it's like, I used to do it as a kid because I remember I had those nightmares that I was telling you about. And I ended up doing that. I was always being chased to my house and trying to find an exit. And I used to always wake up. I was almost, I'd probably get caught and wake up. I'm like, what else would I do differently? Right. So planning the escape. And that helped me. And so now when I went and actually looked at the research, oh, you're supposed to be doing something like that, right? Like you're supposed to sort of find a way that it's comforting and positive. So like if someone's having a nightmare where they're being chased, one of the things you could do when you wake up like all anxious, you could rescript it in, in the dream. So you're being chased and then you said, so I wonder who's chasing me. Turn around. Oh, and you realize it's actually, you know, a giant teddy bear. And it just wants to hug me and say it loves me. And so 
And that's so the dream. So you're changing it. And so now you're thinking about it in a positive way. And it's the avoidance that tends to prolong those dreams. But what's interesting is when it comes to trauma research, when you start working on some of the trauma dreams people have, what's interesting is it impacts the trauma in waking life. So it actually helps reduce the trauma. So a lot of times we think about, mm-hmm. oh, if we work on our trauma, our dreams will decrease, negative dreams will decrease, which is true, but it takes a long time for trauma to be reduced or understood. Um, but, but you also go the opposite way. So you can, it's, it's bi-directional. So you can also work on your dreams. It can help you process your trauma. So it's like looking at it both ways. It's just another tool to help people through, you know, very difficult times and um, that they're going through. Wow. Just to highlight that, how it goes both ways, how if you have a negative dream, you can rescript it. And when you have a positive dream or a rescripted dream, it can help you in your waking life, working through trauma. That's a very powerful data point. You know, I'm thinking of the couple of the nightmares that I had post Archer's injury. And one of them, I was out in the ocean in a boat and it was storming and dark and uh, I was with my children and we all toppled over and I couldn't get to my children like everybody was drowning. And my alarm went off. And I mean, I woke up and I'm like, my heart's fluttery and I'm perspiring and I'm just in a, in a high state of arousal, of vigilance and, and swimming hard and, and crying and praying. And it was just so real that not knowing about dream rescripting, I wrote down furiously, I keep a dream journal, what it was that happened with a commitment that I had to go back to it. And so I did, I went back to it, but with the request to, you know, to God and to the divine to help me rework that to a different ending. And it really was very comforting to me to get everybody back in the boat. And another boat came basically, right, to give us a lifeline. And I think it was very real. I didn't know what would happen, but that's exactly what it looked like in our lives. We had so many other people giving us a lifeline. Wow, that's so that beautiful. dream rescripting is powerful. It is, it really is. true. I, and I also, I know we're coming to uh, time, but I want to sort of mention some more research I've did when it came to people who don't have these dreams. And one of the common concerns that clinicians have who run grief groups with the bereaved is, uh, even the bereaved themselves, is why is, you know, Johnny having dreams and I'm not? You know, like, what is it? Is something wrong with me? And so people would complicate their grief by saying, maybe the deceased doesn't love me anymore. Maybe they're mad at me because I had to sell the home or something like that. So they'll definitely like find these ways or maybe they didn't even cross over. If this person's spiritual, maybe they're in hell or purgatory, right? Like maybe they weren't good enough. And so they're really complicating like what they're already feeling about the soul. And other people just, just get jealous if let's even if you're not spiritual like to see that you're deceased one more time to say i love you like that's worth a million dollars like it's it's such a powerful experience yeah. and you can sort of you know yeah. resent people for even having it if you don't have it why you and not i that's right and so i really wanted to understand that a little bit more and so i did multiple studies to try to figure that out and understand it and so what we found was that we looked at different variables from personality to grief to sleep to dreaming just in general, even spirituality, we looked at. And so what we found in multiple studies, so it was replicated, was dream recall in general was the most significant predictor 
on both. So what it's saying is that people who remember more dreams in general tend to remember more dreams of the deceased. And so it seems to be more a memory function of your dreams. And so people are probably dreaming of the deceased more than they're actually remembering it. And I think that really helps people solidify what's maybe going on. We still understand why certain dreams are remembered more than others. But if you're having a lot of negative dreams, I can understand maybe the mind not wanting you to remember it. Um, but if you're having these positive dreams, I don't know, maybe it's still having an impact and you're just not remembering it. Like those are interesting questions I sort of have in my everyday life is, you know, if we don't remember a dream, does it still have the same impact on the grief journey um, with the deceased? And so... That is an interesting question. It is, yeah. But when I sort of usually talk to people and they say, I haven't ever had a dream, you know, why is that? And I ask them, how often do they dream? Most often they don't remember the dreams. And so I just that simple research is able to connect those dots for them because in grief, it's hard to connect those dots. Like, I know you want it, but you don't even really remember your dreams, right? So it's just one of those things that helps people reduce that weight that they're carrying on them. And I said, like, you can always ask, you know, family members or other people around, like, what their dreams are because you can use that, utilize some of those dreams as your own, especially if you're worried if they've crossed over or anything like that because there's so much wisdom in a lot of these comforting dreams that, you know, you can take on and, and realize yourself when it comes to your own grief journey and the love that we're, we're trying to feel again. Because, you know, when someone dies, one of the things I've realized was that not only the person died, but the person was a vessel for us to feel loved. And now we're left with less love for us to realize that that is within us. And so these dreams can be a very powerful tool to remind us of the love that still exists within because a lot of the world's external, right? So a lot of times when we feel love is because of something external to us and you take those people out, we're left with like nothing. Um, and so it's like, it's just a shift in focus that love still exists, even though the external isn't there, that is still part of you. And I always mm -hmm. think that's so beautiful. And you see it across cultures because one of the main things of dreams, uh, these comforting dreams across cultures is this love that is shared within the dream. And you could be an atheist and still have these experiences. It has nothing to do with your spirituality. Spirituality just helps with symbols in the dreams and maybe what is said to maybe help your own spiritual journey or, or religious understandings. But overall, the love is like the constant message throughout. And so I always think that's very interesting and unique in the sense of the bereavement process. I love that. And what it is that seems to matter most to people through trauma on their journey for trauma healing is that any sense of that deep experience of union and being loved um, and all-encompassing feeling and how culture and spirituality we can be spoken to in those symbols as you've just mentioned and it can also become a barrier for a lot of other not complete explanations that humankind is trying to put forward to understanding something that they don't fully understand. And I, I love how you have shared how whether one believes in a divine source or not, uh, you can still have one of these incredibly, I'll still call it mystical experiences. And if you come from a religious tradition that might say it was evil or the devil or bad karma or whatever it was, to look deeper, always searching for where that love feeling is because I do think that is the message on, on trauma healing and you've experienced it and so many people in your research have experienced it I've experienced it and how we can cultivate that in requesting even if it's a lifetime 
for our loved ones to come to us in some way. It's just amazing. I'm wondering if there are other things, Joshua, that you might, tips, if you will, that you might share with listeners for how they might cultivate their dream life, even if they are unaware of dream recall or think they don't dream. What are some other things that people can do? When it comes to just dreams in general, if you don't recall your dreams, well, it's going to be hard to have one. <laughs> and so about 10% of the population, just that's not part of their life being human. And so you won't be able to, to catch one of those dreams. But for most people, our dream world is actually very fluid. And so in Western culture, we do downplay dreams. We tend to have less of them. And so the less we value our dreams, the less we're going to remember our dreams. And so this is just shown in research. So the moment that you want to remember more dreams, write them down, you know, listen to read about it, listen to episodes about it, and just really fascinate yourself with them and talk about them and per- like while you're awake. And what you'll see is that your dreams actually, dreams you remember will increase. And I remember doing this, I remember about three dreams a week, like two, I think is like the average for most people. But then I started doing this. I started having, you know, three or four dreams a night. And then I was like, I got to stop. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> um, but, but so like just understanding that the, if you want to know more about your dreams and you don't really have many dreams, well, you can change that just by some of the work you're doing in waking life. And you're basically telling yourself, I want to remember these now. The caveat there is that if you're stressed or anxious, you may have a lot of negative dreams. <laughs> so you may be catching a lot of those negative dreams and it's just be able to work with those and not be afraid of those. And yeah. it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. And it's normal to have these, these negative dreams. And the beauty about I, what I love about dreams is that even if you don't understand it, the message will repeat itself if it's important. And so you can look for patterns in your own dreams based on how you're feeling during the day, which makes it easier because it's not like you have one shot at this. Like if you're processing your grief or your trauma, it's going to happen over and over and over again. It's not like going away. And so you can utilize your dreams as different tools and also as a pattern to really help you understand. And if you go to see like a therapist of some sort, they may help understanding too on some of the things that you're feeling. And also you can track changes in yourself through your dreams, which I also love to know that if it's almost if it's real or not. (laughs) Yeah, lovely. So keeping a dream journal is a very real thing Mm -hmm. that you would encourage. Yeah, love that. And also always starting with what was the emotional content. It sounds like would be at the top of your list as well. As we wind down, you have a really cool podcast. Could you tell us about that and what it has been like for your listeners as you receive feedback? Yeah, so it's, it's been an amazing process. You know, the goal for me was always to raise awareness on the topic and the research. And one of the things I, you know, you don't really get good at and well, you don't collect a lot of is and be able to showcase a lot of the dreams people have and the impact on their life. Like you can have maybe some... You know, qualitative stuff, but you never really get the essence you know, when you write a manuscript. And so I really want to find a way to help people um, just understand the differences in these dreams and how they can be impactful or, you know, hinder someone's grief journey. And so started the podcast, I think it's seven years ago now. We have over 220 episodes, I think. Just different guests talking about their journey. I learned so much personally from the dreams they have. They're all very unique. Sometimes there's patterns you see, but overall they're very unique to the person and what they're grieving, who they're grieving, and the symbols in them, and, and how it represents like a lot of their life, and also the impact. I said a lot of them, most of them are very comforting and positive and life changing, which is just really amazing to see. And then you have those negative dreams that people do share. So 
overall, I think it's a, it's a great window into some of the dreams that people can have and the impact within their grief journey. So if people are curious about their own dreams, I think it's a great little you know tool to go to. And I've sort of, at the end of every year, I just take out the dreams of people that they sort of talk about. So it gives people like a snapshot of all the dreams that we've talked about um, within that year. And it's just like, you sort of really see in that moment the differences between them. But like if someone's grieving, they may see their own dream and like the pattern of their own dream in someone else. And then they can go and, and see how that was resolved or how they sort of viewed that to give them some deeper understanding of their own dreams. But it's been good. And a lot of people have sort of, you know, shared on how they enjoy hearing that kind of addition to grief. So a lot of times when we talk about grief, it tends to be in this very similar setting. And so I'm by adding dreams in, you're getting a different avenue of questioning for the person that they've never really talked about before. As you sort of with me and you, no one really asked that. And so most of the times, you know, I'm the first person asking about their dreams that they're having um, because it's not common knowledge that these are occurring so often and that they're important. And so it just provides a different avenue of conversation that I always love. I said at the end, I always ask, you know, what dream would someone want to have if they could? Because I think that's for those people who don't have a dream. That's always a great question I ask because what are you longing for? Like, what is it that your soul is, you know, really trying to have? And then a lot of times they don't know. And I think that's interesting in itself because there's a lot of questions, even in the dreams we want to have, there's a lot of questions that it can provide and a lot of opportunity for discussion on their grief just through talking about their dreams. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, overall, it's been a very positive experience. Gosh, I just uh, love the analogy that while so much of the focus on grieving has been around bereavement of the loss of people and and pets, but the analogy for the loss, anything traumatic, you know, the loss of a career or a limb, you know, or a relationship, a home, so many traumatic losses. To close with what you had just said, that's really quite profound for all of us about what it is that can happen when, when we do dream and what that can be like for us in our lives. And to ask ourselves, what is it if we could have the dream that it would be? Wow. Is there any other word of wisdom that you would like to share with listeners before we close, Joshua? You know, like, I guess like the biggest, you know, words of wisdom, just be kind to yourself on this wild journey with any kind of trauma when it comes to breathing or anything else. It's a, it's a hard road to walk, a lot of missteps and a lot of misinformation that are given. And so it's really to just be kind and, and go slow and know that it's a process to work through and to integrate into one's life. And so the best way to do it is look for tools and other people who've been through a similar journey um, along the way, because they can give you an honest understanding of the process. And so with my life so far and all the different, I guess, traumas I've experienced, I would say the biggest lesson I learned is that love is the strongest medicine. The love from other people, the love you have for yourself has really served me well in walking the road with my trauma. And like, it's I think there's a misperception that you get rid of your trauma. I think it always shapes you in a certain way. It just has a different pull on where you go and also who you serve. Like if my dad never died, I never would have served the bereaved themselves. 
and research this mm-hmm. so you can, you know, your trauma shapes you, you know, and you work with that. You work with what life gives you in many ways and, and that's okay because there's so many people that need to be served and so many people that are feeling unloved and so many people are feeling devalued within life and that your presence itself can be the thing that helps them, you know, make their life a little bit easier. And I guess the other words I have is if people want to know more, we only talked a little bit about the subject, but if people want to know more, they can go to my website at griefdreams.ca. I have a common questions page on there that goes through a lot of different questions that people have asked about these dreams, but also sleep in general too, which we haven't really talked about. But that's just for more information on to increase your grief literacy, even though it's specifically on bereavement, it also would affect any other kinds of trauma people go through. Thank you. We will have all of that for our listeners in the show notes. And you may also find Dr. Joshua Black uh, presenting and doing workshops that we would commend to your registration or just commend to you as a fabulous uh, way to explore your own interior life. Cannot thank you enough, Joshua, for this wonderful conversation. And I look forward to having you back with greater research over the years, because I imagine that there will be more patterns and more insights you'll be able to share with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, personally receiving my dreams. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. And also thank you for having me on. It's, It's always a pleasure and I always have great gratitude for people who want to know more about this subject and hold a beautiful space to share. So I also honor the space you're providing through this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joshua, for shining light onto the world of trauma, grief, and the power of dreams for trauma healing and for helping us better understand ourselves. Let's all remember that even in our darkest moments, the power of dreams and the enduring bonds of love can light our path. Write down your dreams. Talk about your dreams. And together, we can find solace in the beauty of these connections and continue to heal and grow. We are not alone. Thank you, Dr. Joshua Black, for your insights and unwavering dedication. Within the depths of sorrow, there can be profound moments of healing through dreams where we can feel touched by the divine and life on the other side for comfort and personal growth. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, lift or who may relate never miss an episode subscribe to blink of an eye on our website blink of an on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcast